I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. On March 2nd, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in Brnovich versus DNC. The case asks whether two of Arizona's election policies violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, Today, we'll explore the case and its potential implications with two of America's leading experts on voting rights. Chris Kaiser is an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. He co-authored the Pacific Legal Foundation's amicus brief in support of Mark Brnovich, who is the Attorney General of Arizona, and wrote the SCOTUS blog article, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, Equal Opportunity versus Disparate Impact. Chris, thank you so much for joining. Great to be on. And Sean Morales-Doyle is Deputy Director of the Voting Rights and Elections Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. He co-authored the Brennan Center's amicus brief in support of the Democratic National Committee. Sean, thank you so much for joining. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Chris, let's begin with the stakes of the Brnovich case. What are the policies that are being challenged before the Supreme Court? And what is the constitutional debate about whether Section 2 should be interpreted in terms of what you call equal opportunity versus disparate impact? So first of all, there are two policies that are being challenged here. One is uh, the Arizona's general policy that prohibits out-of-precinct voting. So the state will not count any vote that's cast in the wrong precinct. Uh, And the other policy is a recent statute that prohibits uh, what its supporters call ballot harvesting and uh, opponents call ballot collection, which uh, basically limits the the people who can deliver a voted absentee ballot uh, to immediate family and uh, caregivers for um, those who are in need of assistance. And both of these policies were challenged, I believe it was back in 2015, uh, as violations of uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And they, now it's it's been played into this um, longstanding debate over the, uh, the, the reach of Section 2, which really, uh, you know, goes back to uh, at least 1982 when Congress amended Section 2 to uh, establish the results test, which was in response to the Supreme Court's decision in City of Mobile versus Bolden uh, that had held that Section 2 required discriminatory intent co- uh, coterminous with the 15th Amendment. Uh, so really, the, the question in these cases is, um, we, we know that Congress intended that uh, something more than, or something less than discriminatory intent was required to prove a Section 2 violation. The question is, is how much less? And uh, I think for that, we, we look to the statute, statutory text. And in, in Section 2B, the statute speaks of equality of opportunity to participate in the electoral process. Um, and it specifically disclaims proportional representation. And now, for a Section 2 claim to succeed under the standard in the Ninth Circuit, that essentially uh, the, the court analyzed two factors. The first was disparate burden on, on voters based on race. And the second was that, that the disparate burden's interaction with social and historical conditions. And we think the problem here from our point of view is that, from my point of view, is that 
Um, in every case where, in, in, in recent times, when every, in every case where the court has found a disparate burden, it has always managed to link it to social and historical conditions that uh, produce the outcome and find a violation of the results test. And in that event, Section 2 becomes essentially a disparate impact statute, which um, even, the Supreme, even where the Supreme Court has found that disparate impact liability is permissible, such as under the Fair Housing Act, it's always cautioned that uh, a, a causation requirement, a robust causation requirement, is required to cabin the statute so that it doesn't require race-based decision-making in, um, in, in, in all of its applications. Um, so in, in the, in, for Section 2, in the redistricting context, you can see this very clearly, how Section 2 has applied to essentially require state legislatures to consider race when they're drawing legislative districts. Um, now, in the, in, the, in the context here, which are called vote denial cases, where you're looking at a disproportionate impact on participation or turnout or some other um, metric, it's been less clear. But still, we've seen in the past decade, when as these cases have proliferated, uh, that the focus on race in state legislatures has, has continued and it's only going to continue if the Ninth Circuit's uh, interpretation of Section 2 is affirmed here. Thank you so much uh, for setting up the, this very complicated topic. So clearly, uh, when I teach constitutional law, these Section 2 cases are among the most complicated. So I'm so grateful to both of you for helping We the People listeners understand the constitutional stakes. Sean, pick up from where Chris started. Tell us more about how in 1982, Congress repudiated the Supreme Court's Mobile case, which said that you need evidence of intentional discrimination before you can find a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and instead substituted this language about uh, a violation being established based on the totality of the circumstances if political processes leading to nomination or election are not equally open to participation by members of a protected class and that they have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. As Chris said, it wasn't clear from that text exactly what the standard was for determining a Section 2 violation. Congress repudiated proportional representation, but in the Thornburg and Jingles case, which you cite in your brief, the Supreme Court laid uh, a framework for evaluating uh, violations of Section 2, and the Senate included a number of factors that you endorse, including a history of voting-related discrimination in the state and the extent to which voting is racially polarized in trying to decide whether Section 2 has been triggered. So there's a lot going on here, but take our listeners through um, what Congress was trying to do in 1982 and how you think that Section 2 should be interpreted. Sure. So um, I think going back to your original question about what the the constitutional stakes are here. I think the constitutional stakes from my perspective are whether we can have an effective enforcement mechanism for the 15th Amendment, for the 15th Amendment, for the ban on racial discrimination in voting in the 15th Amendment. And, you know, um, for the first hundred years of the 15th Amendment, we pretty clearly didn't have an effective enforcement mechanism. And so we continued to see rampant race discrimination in voting. That's why we have the Voting Rights Act of 1965. 
um, is is to, to provide that um, enforcement mechanism. But after the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, um, as Chris and you have mentioned, the Supreme Court um, found that in order to violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is the um, nationwide um, prohibition on race discrimination voting that provides for um, a, a right of action to sue to challenge discriminatory practices, that, that it required proof of discriminatory intent to bring a claim under Section 2. The Congress in 1982 uh, essentially said that is not going to provide us an effective enforcement mechanism for the 15th Amendment, um, that it is incredibly difficult to prove discriminatory intent. Um, you know, we we actually don't want to force plaintiffs to prove discriminatory intent for a number of reasons. Um, it, it requires, you know, delving into um you know, the background of the legislative process in a way that we're not necessarily comfortable with. It requires uh, accusing state legislators and legislatures of racism in a way that isn't helpful. Um, and, and frankly, given the way race works in our society, it is quite possible to pass discriminatory policies without doing anything that sort of reveals some, um, some animus in a way that would allow you to prove discriminatory intent in a court. Um, and so Congress in 1982 said, um, we are going to make clear in response to the Supreme Court's decision that in order to ensure that we can have an effective remedy for race discrimination in voting in this country and really make the 15th Amendment um, promise of equality in our elections um, come to fruition, we are going to create a results test where the courts can look at whether or not a policy causes discriminatory results. Um, and that is the test that's now been on the books since 1982 and has functioned in, um, in you know, case after case under Section 2 in both vote dilution and vote denial claims. Um, in the Jingles case, um, but I'll, I'll say it is, first of all, in our opinion, I, this is one place where Chris and I might agree, not a what folks might call a pure disparate impact test. Um, in, in our brief, we describe it as an, uh, an impact plus test. Um, it, it looks at whether or not there's a disparity in the impact of a policy. But then um, what the text of Section 2 says is you have to look at the totality of the circumstances in order to decide whether um, the the um, inequality in access is on account of race. Um, and what does the totality of the circumstances mean? Um, well, you know, courts conduct totality of the circumstances inquiries in a lot of different contexts. Courts, um, this is what courts are good at, right? They look at all of the facts, they understand what's happening, um, and, and try to decide whether or not um, there are discriminatory results here. But um, when Congress passed the amendments in 1982, the Senate issued a report, which we just now call the Senate report, um, and laid out a number of examples of the kinds of factors that a court might take into account when evaluating the totality of the circumstances. And so in the Jingles case, the Supreme Court essentially said, we're going to use that guidance that Congress gave us when they passed this law to help us understand what the totality of the circumstances um, that we should be looking at is. It's not a definitive list. It's not Every factor isn't going to be relevant in every case, um, but courts are capable of figuring that out. Uh, and so in this case, for example, the 
Ninth Circuit looked at, uh, conducted what the courts call an intensely local appraisal of the way that these two policies function on the ground in Arizona, given Arizona's history, given the way race functions in Arizona's society, and figured out whether or not these policies, based on a totality of the circumstances, are result are causing discriminatory results and making it harder for um, Native American, Latino, and Black voters to cast their ballots. And the court determined that these policies did do that and therefore violated the results test of Section 2. And I think if we if the court, as some of the the uh, petitioners and their Miki have asked, were to um, change that approach and were to make it much harder to bring Section Two claims and were make to make it much harder to um, to stop discriminatory policies and voting, um, the result would be to put us back to a place where we don't have that effective enforcement mechanism for the Fifteenth Amendment, and um, and that is ultimately what the, the constitutional stakes are here. Chris, uh, Sean says that the stakes are, will there be an effective enforcement mechanism for the 15th Amendment? The background for this case is that uh, Section 2 of the, of the 14th Amendment is now being used in uh, to attack not only so-called vote dilution claims that come from redistricting and how you draw boundaries, but vote denial claims uh, that come from laws that make it harder to register to vote. They include the Arizona laws at issue in this case involving whether you have to vote in a particular precinct or whether you can bundle your ballots uh, with other folks and have them taken in, but also voter ID laws and other laws that challengers say are designed to discriminate against uh, minorities and defenders say are necessary to avoid voter fraud. Tell us about the interpretation of Section 2 that you think is most appropriate in light of its text and history, and what are you urging the Supreme Court to adopt as a test? Yeah. So first, the interpretation of Section 2 that uh, I think I think it's helpful to present a dichotomy of what the, the recently in the post-Shelby County cases that what, what courts have adopted are, is essentially this two-part test uh, where first they look for a disparate impact, and second they they either apply the uh, the Gingles factors or do some other uh, sort of analysis, uh, totality of the circumstances analysis, to link uh, the just disparate impact to social and historical conditions of discrimination. The the problem from my perspective is that unfortunately the the conditions that the Ninth Circuit talked about in Arizona and that the Fifth Circuit talked about in the Texas voter ID case, VZ versus Abbott, and that the Fourth Circuit talked about in the North Carolina case, uh, they, they exist in a variety of states and oftentimes are uh, very difficult to pin down onto a state, which, uh, you know, a lot of the states, states obviously have a sordid history of racial discrimination in this country particularly the ones who are covered in under section uh, section five's preclearance test before uh, Shelby County was decided. However, uh, at some point there there must be some a disconnect where a state can no longer be responsible for its past uh, racial discrimination. The problem is that <clears throat> under the Gingles test, there is no line where uh, there's no distinguishing between private discrimination and state discrimination, and in every in every case, the the, the courts have that the courts have analyzed this. 
they have come up with the the conclusion that uh, a disparate impact uh, is linked to social and historical conditions of discrimination, and that includes this case where you know take the out of precinct policy for example. Uh, <clears throat> Arizona has uh, has very liberal mail-in voting, and 80% of Arizonans vote by mail. The remaining 20% vote um, at their precincts on election day. And out of those, less than 1% of people voted in the wrong precinct, regardless of race. So we were talking about a total of 0.2% of um, <clears throat> minority voters and 0.1% of white voters who voted in the wrong precinct uh combine on election day versus early voting where precinct system doesn't matter. So uh, to to the point of the totality of the circumstances test, you can look at the totality of, and this is what I would urge the court to do, look at the totality of Arizona's system where where you have vote by mail and you have um, election day voting. And you, and then, then from that you can, you can uh, make the determination that, Arizona does have a system that is open for all to participate regardless of race. The problem is that if the court were to adopt the Ninth Circuit's position, it's hard to envision any law that has a disparate impact based on race to, that would, would, would not violate Section 2. And I, I think that might be why um, the Biden administration, although it repudiated the Trump administration's proposed Section 2 test, uh, still would not go as far as to say that um, these particular provisions would violate the results test. The problem is the test applied in the Ninth Circuit would lead to that happening in, in almost every case. So uh, my, <clears throat> my position is that the court ought to focus on the totality of a state's voting apparatus and determine whether the state provides everyone, regardless of race, with an equal opportunity to participate in elections. Um, And I I think you see how, in some other cases, how this uh, this, this might be different from the test applied in the Ninth Circuit. For example, I'm intensely familiar with the Fourth Circuit North Carolina case I um uh, and I was a uh, district court clerk when that case first came up, and uh, in that case, uh, one of the main challenges was uh, to the reduction of early voting from 17 days to 10 days, while keeping the same number of hours uh, per, of early voting. So, actually, required counties to add certain. Um, accommodations for more hours during the compressed 10-day schedule. Uh, and and I think, and the parties in that case disputed whether the proper measure of disparate impact was to say, well, we went from 17 days to 10 days. And since Black voters used those seven days of early voting disproportionately, that's a disparate impact. Or is the proper measure to look at the current system of 10 days of early voting with the expanded hours requirement and determine whether that system provides all voters with an equal opportunity to participate in the political process. And under that standard, I think, and, and, this, and that, that case also involved an out of precinct challenge uh, too, which the fourth circuit found violated the results test, uh, very similar to the Arizona provision. Um, 
in both cases, I would argue that the equality of uh, opportunity to participate uh, under the current system is the proper standard. And uh, I think often these cases are um, not not necessarily in the Arizona case because we, we we don't have we're not comparing the what would happen before to what happened after, but often in a voter ID case or uh, a case involving early voting, you're comparing what happened before to what happened after when the proper uh, the proper inquiry should be to look at the current system and determine whether everyone, regardless of race, has an equal opportunity to participate. And I think the numbers here in Arizona, where you see that uh, that 99.8% of people you know, vote in the right precinct or vote early, demonstrate that everyone does. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Sean, as Chris says, the Biden administration has written a letter to the Supreme Court um, and it does not defend the result of the Ninth Circuit, which struck down those two Arizona provisions, but it does want to distance himself from the Trump administration's test for vote denial under the Voting Rights Act. Uh, so tell our listeners why the Biden administration decided that these two Arizona provisions perhaps could survive even the more robust totality of the circumstances test that it and you are urging. And then tell us why you disagree with the test that uh, Chris has endorsed, which is just asking whether the current system, all things considered, gives people an equal opportunity to participate. And instead, you'd focus on the impact on, on those most affected, uh, which in Arizona may have been only 0.2%. But as your brief suggests, that's uh, a meaningful number of votes that could actually make a difference in elections. Yeah. So on the first point, um, I think I can't speak for the Biden administration as to why they decided um, to come down the way they did on the Arizona policies themselves, because the Biden administration did not um, offer up an explanation on on that. Right. All, all, for background, what the Biden administration did, um, the Biden administration um, filed this letter after the briefing was complete in the case. Um, and so given the stage of the proceedings, um, the, the Biden administration just filed a letter that essentially said, we're not changing our position on whether or not the, the Ninth Circuit should be overturned um, without any more explanation about why they were coming down that way. But um, the administration did also say that the... Um, the substance of the brief that the Trump administration Department of Justice had submitted, um, they were not in agreement with the substance of the brief, that they were no longer standing by the positions that they took and the arguments that they made in the brief that they had filed in December. And that is significant because um, that brief departed significantly from the position that the Department of Justice has taken on how to apply Section 2 in the past. In fact, it departed um, in part and in large part by insisting on a stronger causation standard in Section 2 um, along the lines of what um, Chris and his organization and others have asked the court um, uh, to take up in this case the Biden administration's DOJ said, we are stepping back. We are correcting course. We are essentially not going to depart from the way the Department of Justice has always interpreted Section 2. Um, but 
apparently, even in the way that they have historically interpreted Section 2, they think these Arizona policies in particular do not violate that standard. Um, I think that it's important that regardless of how they come down on the Arizona policy, this letter um, makes clear that they aren't going in a new direction and how they think Section 2 should work. I think it's also important to keep in mind that um, the district court and the Ninth Circuit panel and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals here, um, the Ninth Circuit sitting on Bonk, disagreed as to how Section 2, as it is currently understand to function, applied to the facts in this case. The fact is that um, this is a fact-intensive appraisal. It's a totality of the circumstances appraisal. Courts are meant to look at all of the circumstances um, and decide whether or not the policies in question violate the results test. And that is a complicated inquiry. And you could come down, um, you know, different ways um, and and uh, on any particular policy in, in a particular local situation. Um, that doesn't mean that um, the fact that you might disagree with the way the Ninth Circuit came down um, ultimately and how they applied this test doesn't mean we should throw out the test. Um, doesn't mean we should go a new way in the way that we apply Section 2. Um, and then to respond to um, the test that that Chris is proposing here, I would say, um, it, it to me, of course it is important that a state decided to restrict access to voting, and we should be looking at a state's decision to restrict access to voting to determine whether or not that decision was discriminatory. Not just to look at after the state restricted access to voting, are we comfortable with this system in the abstract? If a state restricted access to voting with a discriminatory purpose, as the Fourth Circuit found that North Carolina did, right? The, the, the Fourth Circuit found that North Carolina acted with targeted black voters with surgical precision. If they did that, we wouldn't just ask is the end result okay? We would ask, um, as the court did, was North Carolina targeting black voters when it did this thing? And of course, all of us would say, it's not okay for North Carolina to restrict voting in a way that targets black voters. That obviously violates Section 2, and it obviously violates the 15th Amendment. The same is true if we can't definitively prove that that was North Carolina's purpose. Um, and that's the whole point of the 1982 amendments to Section 2, is that if North Carolina is restricting access to voting because of the way race works, because of the impact that it has on our society, as Chris pointed out, um, it, 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 it's ubiquitous. Um, the legislature in a state, policymakers in a state, elections officials in a state can um, produce discriminatory results without doing anything that reveals that they were doing so for that purpose in some obvious way. Um, it is easy to take advantage of, um, to exploit the reality of the way race works in our society in order to make it harder for certain groups of people to vote without saying that you're doing it in order to make it harder for certain groups uh, to vote. And just as we would not be okay with it if you said it out loud, we're not okay with it if you pull it off without saying it out loud. Um, so. Absolutely, I think it's important to take into account that a state is deciding to restrict access to voting 
differently than it did in the past, that it is actually changing its system to make it harder to vote, um, is something that we need to take into account. I also think that if, if you can show that that restriction makes it harder for people of color to vote or for Native American voters to vote, um, then the fact that there may be some other part of the electoral system that provides a different opportunity for someone to participate doesn't change the fact that you've limited this opportunity to participate. Um, We call these claims vote denial claims, but that's not actually a a complete description of what what Section 2 is all about. Section 2 talks about the denial or abridgment of the right to vote. It doesn't require completely cutting off all opportunities for somebody to cast a ballot for there to be a violation. And that was also very clear um, when Congress passed the, the 1982 amendments, that Congress didn't didn't want to limit this to situations where there was some absolute prohibition to voting for folks. Um, they were looking at the practical realities. Um, it, it, it's not about whether there's some theoretical opportunity for people to participate in an equal way. It's about the practical reality of how a policy functions on the ground and whether or not it cuts off opportunities in a discriminatory way. Um, so I don't, I think we would be, um, to, to go the route that Chris is proposing, we would very clearly be going against what um, was intended by Congress in 1982. And, and I think, you know, I, I would encourage folks to go look at the brief. Uh, one of the amicus briefs filed here was a brief by um, Senate staffers from both sides of the aisle in 1982 who were intimately involved in um, in the passage of the 1982 amendments. And that's what they say. They say that the approach that's being proposed um, by a number of the petitioners in their Miki here is a pretty obvious departure from what it was that Congress intended back in 1982. Um, so I, I, you know, sort of have it from the source there and, and, and it's, it's not a partisan source. Um, this is, this wasn't a bill that was, um, passed only by one party ever. Um, every time it was enacted and reenacted, um, the 1982 amendments, it was always bipartisan. There was always, um, pretty uh, amazing agreement across the political spectrum that this is what we needed in order to ensure that we didn't see discrimination in our elections. Um, and, uh, I think right now would be a terrible time given everything that we are seeing happening in the world, given the the wave of restrictive voting laws that we're seeing being introduced across the country, um, it would be a terrible time to um, limit once again, as the Supreme Court already did just a few years back, to limit once again um, the tools that we have to, um, to challenge discriminatory policies. Chris, in your brief, you say that the current split of authority covers two discrete questions about Section 2. First, what is a discriminatory result? And second, to what extent must this result be connected to discrete state action? That involves the thorny question of causation, which Sean just mentioned. To what extent does Section 2 hold states responsible for uh, socioeconomic conditions? Um, Tell our listeners why you think that a causation requirement should be tighter than the one that Sean is suggesting, and why you believe that the broader totality of the circumstances test that he is proposing runs the risk of running afoul of the Constitution itself by requiring the government to be race conscious in a way that might make Section 2 itself 
an unconstitutional violation of the equal protection of the laws. Sure. Uh, so I'll start with the the causation uh, question. And in, in, in other contexts, the Supreme Court has addressed this precise question, for instance, in the uh, in the school busing cases, Milliken versus Bradley, where the court held that um, that uh, a school district could not be responsible, held responsible for racial discrimination of a neighboring school district, um, or for um, and then in parents involved in community schools versus Seattle school district, um, the court said that uh, school districts cannot be held responsible for societal discrimination. So in the same in the same vein, uh, a state, and I, I now I, I agree that there's there there could be some connection between a state's discriminatory policy and um, socio socioeconomic conditions. However, uh, the the further along uh, uh, we go, removed from those discriminatory laws that were in place, for example, Jim Crow. Uh, the, the the harder it becomes to pin on a state the uh, the the results of so, socioeconomic results, as Judge Easterbrook explained in his Seventh Circuit opinion in Frank versus Walker, we we can't attribute to states every aspect of private discrimination, or or we run the risk of essentially um, requiring that Section Two is uh, is essentially going to strike down an every state's voting apparatus. And I don't, now I don't expect that that will happen. Certainly um, the majority of states currently restrict out of precinct voting. And, and that hasn't been struck down as far as I know, outside of North Carolina. Um, but um, if you adopt the, the totality of the circumstances test that the DNC and their amici have put forth, it lends itself to eventually that being a possibility. For example, I want to go back to the North Carolina uh, case where you really see the clear example of a, a one-way ratchet that could possibly happen. Uh, first of all, there were two North Carolina Fourth Circuit cases, and I'm, I'm absolutely not referring to the 2016 case that found discriminatory intent. I don't take any position on that. Um, as for the, the 2014 case that applied the results test, that's the one I was referring to. Um, and in, in that case, the court, um, analyzed North Carolina's, uh, prohibition on same day registration, for example, and at a precinct voting, both policies had been enacted for only for less than 10 years. And before that, the state had the same policy that was being challenged. And it seems very strange that those policies under the totality of the circumstances test that that uh, the other side is proposing here that the DNC is proposing um, that those policies become a violation of section two only because the state had previously decided to liberalize its voting laws and then and then when, when uh, unfortunately these things are often partisan tug of war, um, and I, state legislatures certainly act in a partisan manner in, in, in hoping that whatever voting regulations they pass are going to help their party win. And, and there's no question about that. And I don't endorse that. Uh, but unfortunately, when you are looking at this, it, it's hard to distinguish between 
while a, a policy like no same-day registration being a violation of Section 2 in 2014 because it was just repealed versus before North Carolina ever had same-day registration, were they in violation of Section 2? And I think that's the, the conundrum you see when you, you have a benchmark of the prior system, and is this more restrictive than the prior system to prove disparate impact? And that's why I, I, I endorse the totality of, circum, of the circumstances test that looks to the state's entire voting apparatus and determines whether, uh, all things considered, everyone has an equal pos- uh, chance to participate in the political process. I do want to move on to the constitutional question that you that you mentioned. I think you can see this most clearly in uh, Section 2 redistricting cases, which are uh, the most common form of Section 2 case, especially um, before the last decade, um, where the court has essentially constructed a system that is an exception to the general requirement that the Equal Protection Clause provides a personal right against racial discrimination, as opposed to a collective right uh, to enforce group representation. And uh, so in cases like Shaw versus Reno, the court has, has said that, um, that um, the Equal Protection Clause permits consideration of race um, uh, as long as race is not the predominant consideration under, uh, for redistricting. And some courts have gone, um, and I, I believe the Supreme Court has said this too, gone as far as to say that considering race uh, for the purposes of complying with Section 2 is a compelling state interest. So that such that Section 2 might be read to require the consideration of race in districting. And I think the same thing is popping up now in these vote denial claims. Uh, and you see it in the legislatures that um, have become consumed with racial debate over voting changes. For example, I think one concrete uh, thing that happens is that now state legislatures have to look at racial data before they, uh, before they will enact a voting change that its opponents say will have a disparate impact. And then the, the very idea that they looked at racial data could be used against them in an intent case because they had to consider the disparate impact that might, um, that might uh, occur if they went ahead and passed the law. I don't want to get into uh, the intent test here because I, I don't take a position on that in my brief. Um, but uh, the, the, the fact is that the, the, the way Section 2 has been interpreted in the majority of the circuits in the recent years, um, it, it encourages and in some cases requires race-based decision-making. And uh, we should want Section 2 to protect equality of opportunity for all voters to vote regardless of race. Section two and, and voting rights and the Equal Protection Clause protects a personal right to vote, a personal right to participate uh, without uh, discrimination on the basis of race. And uh, un- uh, too often, I think these interpretations of section two that uh, require less causation and therefore essentially warp into a disparate impact test, they they discard that um, individual right in in service of a collective right to vote, and I uh, I don't think that that is consistent with the text of Section Two or with the Equal Protection Clause. 
Sean, the constitutional question is stark, and I want to ask you if you think this Supreme Court is likely to confront it. Um, tell us about the stakes here. Do you think in this Arizona case, the current Roberts Court will confront whether Section 2, to the degree that requires race-based decision-making, is constitutional? And do you think that a majority might possibly say that it doesn't and strike down a, a race-conscious use of Section 2? So I think there's sort of um, two different related constitutional questions that are coming out here. And and one of them is the extent to which Section 2 or other tests like it end up bringing race into the conversation where it wasn't there before or something like that, making legislatures consider race, take race into account, engage in race-based decision-making. But the other is a, is a different but related issue that Chris raised earlier, which is whether or not this is a legitimate enforcement mechanism, as I talked about before, for the Reconstruction era amendments to the Constitution. And, the, and Chris referenced a case called City of Bernie, um, which was a case uh, about whether or not a, um, a disparate impact law um, comported with the 14th Amendment was was a proper mechanism for enforcing the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. And, and I want to talk about both of them, and they are related questions. But First, just for purposes of understanding our standard here, I would say, first of all, that the city of Bernie test, um, which asks whether or not a, a statute is proportional and congruent with the 14th Amendment's um, mandate of equal protection and is a remedy that matches up with um, what the 14th Amendment barred, um, has never been applied in the context of the 15th Amendment. Um, it, it, it is not a test that the court has ever um, has ever used in the context of the 15th Amendment. Um, and in fact, in the cases where the Voting Rights Act has been um, challenged in Shelby County, um, in Katzenbach, where the court was evaluating a different part of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, the court did not apply that proportional and congru congruent test um, in City of Bernie. The court asked whether this was a rational um, means of enforcing and providing a remedy for um, violations of the 15th Amendment. Um, and that should be the standard here again. Congress has broad authority. The 15th Amendment says that they have um, the power to use whatever means are appropriate to enforce the 15th Amendment. Um, that was intended to give them broad authority to do what Congress determined in its wisdom was necessary to ensure that there is not race discrimination in voting. Um, so for that first reason, um, I... I hope that the Supreme Court doesn't get into that constitutional question because they don't need to. Congress has determined for decades repeatedly that this is what is necessary in order to, and it is appropriate in order to ensure there's not race discrimination in voting. And that frankly has been relatively uncontroversial for decades that when the court's deciding Shelby County and taking issue with what is a far more significant limitation on state power and di differentiates between states and requires them to basically get clearance for their policies before they can pass them from the federal government, the court essentially assumes that Section 2 is going to continue to function as it has um, in, in that decision. So I, I don't think the court needs to come anywhere close to that constitutional question. Um, but to shift slightly to this, and that's because this is an effective and appropriate way of remedying race discrimination in voting. But to this question of whether or not the test in Section 2 sort of requires legislatures to engage 
in race-based decision-making. Um, I think that that argument is not giving enough, is sort of ignoring the reality of, as Chris has said, how ubiquitous the impact of race is on our society. Um, the, the fact is that these legislatures operate in the real world and they know how the real world functions just as, as the rest of us do. And they can pass facially neutral policies that look like they have nothing to do with race, but given the way that race functions in our society, obviously are going to interact with race to produce the results that they're going to produce. Um, it is, you know, this is an example sort of outside the Voting Rights Act context, but um, we litigated a case in Florida um, for the last year plus over Florida's decision to make people pay to vote if they had a, a um, felony conviction in their background, right? If, if you had a felony conviction, in order to have your voting rights restored, you'd have to pay off all of the fines and fees that you owed before you'd get your, your rights restored to you. When the Florida legislature decided to pass that law, um, they didn't need anybody to to give them race data um, for for everybody to know that there was going to be an impact, uh, a racial impact of requiring people with felony convictions to pay money to get their right to vote back. Um, and they did have that data and people said it during the the debates. But anybody who lives in you know our society in the year 2019, anyone who, um, knows how our criminal justice system functions, how the economic realities of this country are, what it looks like to be a black person with a felony conviction in your past that owes tens of thousands of dollars in debt to the state in, um, in Florida, knows that there is um, going to be a racial component to passing this facially race-neutral policy. And so to pretend like that's not happening um, and to suggest that providing a remedy for race discrimination in policymaking is the thing that is going to make legislatures have to start taking race into account, I think is that. It's just that. It's pretending. The reality is that race is there. It has a real impact. We can't pretend that we're colorblind when we're not, and this social construct is operating to have serious impacts throughout our society. Um, and to say that race only gets injected into the conversation when we start trying to figure out a way to remedy race discrimination, to me, is just not true. It's imagining a reality in which we do not live. We are nowhere near that colorblind society. And so what we need are ways to prevent race from becoming a weapon um, for people to use to make it harder for folks to vote. That's what Section 2 has provided for so long. Um, and to restrict it because we're worried that race is going to become part of the conversation, to me, is ignoring the way things are working right now. I don't think it's hard for people to see in 2021, after everything we just witnessed, the the role that race is playing in all parts of our society, but absolutely in elections and the way that people approach the regulation of our elections. Um, and I'll just also want to briefly address a couple points that came up, one of which is this idea that the, I, I will say, I 
understand and agree with Chris that there are two different North Carolina cases in the Fourth Circuit. And I, I didn't mean to confuse them, but I do. But my point stands that the case that found that North Carolina acted with racial intent, uh, that they were intentionally discriminating, was about rolling back policies that had been on the books, that they were restricting access that had previously existed in order to target black voters. Um, and just as it should violate Section 2 when you can prove they were doing that intentionally, it also violates Section 2 when they are doing that um, and producing discriminatory results, taking the totality of the circumstances into account. Um, so yes, there are two different cases, but the way that it works in the intentional discrimination context, I think, explains why it also needs to work that way. In the results test conversation, I, I also want to quickly say it is not easy to bring a Section 2 claim and win. It's just not. And no one could claim that it is by looking at the landscape of Section 2 cases that have been brought and won. Um, it is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And there are, as Chris says, out-of-precinct policies across the country, but only two of them have been challenged successfully under Section 2. Um, and one of them is the one that's at issue here. And that is because it isn't just, you know, any out-of-precinct policy is racially discriminatory. An out-of-precinct policy violates Section 2 if when you take into account the totality of the circumstances and conduct an intensely local appraisal for how it functions in a particular place at a particular time, it produces discriminatory results. And that is why there's a, an amicus brief from 70 elections officials from 38 different states in Washington, D.C., from both parties, um, saying in this case, we're not worried about a strong Section 2 making it hard for us to do our job. We're not worried about it wiping out all legitimate election administration and election regulation. In fact, we think a strong Section 2 is important for us to continue to do our job of running elections because it helps enforce what we are trying to do, which is to provide everybody an equal opportunity to cast a ballot. So the current status quo is not that we can just challenge any policy we want under Section 2 and all of our elections uh, mechanisms are under threat. That's not the way it functions now. It's not the way it's functioned since 1982. And to suggest that we need to change course now and go a very different direction because of the threat of this powerful Section 2, I think is sort of a revisionist history view of what's been going on since 1982. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this extremely illuminating uh, discussion of a, of a complicated and important topic. And Chris, the first uh, one is to you. In just a few sentences, please tell We the People listeners why the Brnovich case is important and why our listeners should care about it. Well, I think the case is important because I think it's the first time the Supreme Court is going to really deal with the uh, vote denial standard and what tests should apply. And we have a clear circuit split and the court is going to have to decide uh, unless it adopts some sort of uh, like the Biden administration's position <laughs> that which test is proper. And that's going to affect the future of voting regulations. So whichever side you're on, the result here is likely going to affect how uh, states conduct their voting regulation from here on out. And I think the stakes are particularly high because this is an issue that's been in the last, uh, you know, in the last decade has been uh, ubiquitous. Uh, every election sees Section 2 claims and they're increasingly high profile. And I think the court... Uh, 
needs to resolve it at this point. And uh, it, going forward, I, I, I hope that the court will, will adopt the test that we propose that will protect equality of opportunity to vote without requiring that uh, almost every uh, law that, that might have a disparate impact on a particular racial group violates Section 2. Sean, the last word is to you. Why is the Brnovich case important and why should we the people listeners care about it? Uh, the Brnovich case is important because there is no doubt in 2021 that our democracy faces serious challenges. There is no doubt in 2021 that we are still a society that is struggling with race and race discrimination. And we need um, effective tools like the Voting Rights Act to uh, deal with those problems that we face. And the Supreme Court, unfortunately, uh, dealt a major blow to the tools that we have to remedy those problems in 2013 in the Shelby County case. Um, and now, unfortunately, uh, the petitioners and their amici in this case seem to see this as an opportunity to do further harm to the Voting Rights Act. And so it is important because it is an opportunity for the Supreme Court to reaffirm the principles that underlie our democracy um, of equality um, and and equal opportunity to participate, and um, that the Supreme Court reaffirm the important role that the Voting Rights Act plays in ensuring that we stick to those principles. Um, and the Supreme Court has the opportunity to, to do that in this case, and we hope that it does. Uh, we hope that it does not take up any of the suggestions that it should somehow narrow or limit the application of Section 2, because even you know small limitations on the way that it has functioned for decades could cause real harm. Thank you so much, Chris Kaiser and Sean Morales-Doyle, for an illuminating, deep, and important discussion of the future of voting rights at the Supreme Court. Chris, Sean, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Today's show was produced by Jackie McDermott and engineered by Greg Sheckler. Research was provided by Mac Taylor, Jackie McDermott, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. It's been inspiring to see how many of you have been listening in recently, and we're looking forward to lots of learning together. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. If you've just started listening, it would be so great if you would signal your support for our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount, including a dollar or five dollars, as an expression of enthusiasm and support for our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.